you know, if you're cooking the food yourself, you always know what you're eating. You know every single ingredient that went into it. And we can't say that home cooking is the obvious easy solution because then so many people say, well, that's a very privileged position and not everyone has time. But if you never make time for home cooking in your week, in a way you're saying that food doesn't matter and in a way you're saying that your own survival doesn't matter. Welcome to Fortnum's Hungry Minds podcast. My name is Tom Parker Bowles and I'm delighted to be joined by B. Wilson, the critically acclaimed food journalist, historian and author of four rather brilliant books. In 2016, B won the Food Book of the Year Prize at the Fortnum and Mason Food and Drink Awards for her book Consider the Fork, A History of How We Cook and Eat. In May this year, she won a second Food Book of the Year Prize for her latest First Bite, The Way We Eat Now a riveting exploration of the hidden forces behind what we eat and how modern food has transformed our lives and our world. Singing Bee's praises, Diana Henry is quoted as saying, your book is fearless, rigorous, compassionate and totally readable. Yotam Ottolenghi describes Bee as being the ultimate food scholar. First Bite is a brilliant study of how we form our food preferences and how we may be able to change them. Her narrative kept me hungry for more until the very end. So, without further ado, hello B, and huge congratulations on your second Food and Drink Award. Thank you so much for having me. We're just emerging from a period of lockdown, as we all know. It was a very interesting time in terms of eating and cooking. Do you feel that this will create any long-term change in our cooking and eating habits in the UK? I hope so. I mean, at least I hope so in positive ways rather than, you know, we know that it's been a time of such contradictions, hasn't it? Because on the one hand, people are cooking more, which is wonderful. And for years, we've been sold this line that cooking is really time consuming and difficult. And I think in lockdown, lots of people have just discovered, oh, actually, it's not that hard to make a pot of delicious soup or an omelette. And we just had to cook because so many of the options that would have been available to us weren't there and that gives me huge hope and I feel that once that light bulb's gone off to me it's like almost as natural as just brushing my teeth like not to cook would be really strange like it's pleasure and it's home and it's family and it just seems the most obvious way to eat unless you're eating out but I think so many people just kind of hadn't got that and the ready meal industry had done a really really successful job of somehow making people think that cooking was something mysterious and strange and complicated. And I think once the light bulb's gone off that actually you can get something delicious on the table in even 20 minutes, I can't see why people would completely go back. Can you? No, no. I mean, it's funny that as food writers, and I suppose we're lucky enough to enjoy cooking and, and, and the rest of it, but going back to, to the way we eat now, which is, by the way, and I'm not being oily, it is a fascinating book because there's so much hard uh, scientific data in there but you make it uh, for want of a better word palatable and easy to digest I mean there's one quotation I love in it quite near the beginning that we are the first generation to be hunted by what we eat what did you mean by that yeah I kept writing that line then taking it out and then putting it back in again and but I do believe it actually is true which is that you know we, we haven't been hunter gatherers for a long time and people who are on paleo diets regret that change I actually think farmers are wonderful people and I'm happy that the agricultural revolution happened 10,000 years ago. I'm happy that cooking was invented. I'm happy for so many technological changes. 
But if you look at the changes of the past 20 to 30 years that have happened, not just in Britain, all over the world, never before has it been the case that you would leave the house looking to, well, probably not hunt, but to gather some food using whatever money's in your purse. And you would actually be pushed to consume more, more, more. We haven't been gatherers going on complicated expeditions to go up mountains to collect wild honey for generations. But never before has it been the case that if you leave the house looking for something sweet and you go into a shop, that you're not able to only able to find the thing you're looking for, but you're offered a hundred other sugary products. If you look at things like buy one, get one free offers, or the way that you might go to a newsagent attempting just to buy a newspaper or a notebook and a pen, and they say, well, would you like this huge 200 gram bar of chocolate for a very low price? You think that wasn't what I came in for. That's new. That's There's a level at which ultra processed food, for want of a better phrase, is being pushed upon us and we're actually running to escape it if you look at the number of people in affluent societies who are on a diet at any one time I would almost classify that as being hunted by food and I think being on a diet is also a disastrous thing you come off the diet and then you're back at the same cycle you were when you began of course. And I mean, again, through the book, you know, there's, there's a lot of talk about, you know, you say a survey of more than 300 international policymakers found that 90% of them still believe that personal motivation, also known as willpower, was a very strong cause of obesity. And you, you ask people from all levels of society, all parts of society, rather, you know, why do we have this huge obesity crisis? And a lot of people say, well, it's their own fault. They just think, oh, I want to eat some chocolate. You know, they don't have enough willpower. But then you make the very, very valid point that have we, has there been a collapse in willpower, you know, since since the 60s across all ages and ethnic groups? Do you think to say that willpower is, do you think that, that's just to simplify it best and patronising it worse? Yes, I do think it's patronising it worse, but I think it even does more harm than that. I mean, it is quite insulting to people with obesity or people who are overweight who between those two categories, that's now two thirds of the population. So that's quite a lot of people that we're patronising with that comment. But it's also failing to see the real causes of both obesity and diet related ill health. And I think it's absolutely critical that we look for those causes so that we can undo some of the damage and get back to a place where food is something that nourishes us and gives us joy. And yes, for large sections of the population, That is still true. I also think it's the best of times, the worst of times. For the people that do have a bit of money, that do cook, the access to ingredients now is incredible. But unless we somehow grapple with the fact that food is making large numbers of people extremely unwell, we're going to get in an even worse state than we are now. And it's, I think the willpower thing really breaks down I mean, the quote you just said, that's one point which breaks down. Like, it breaks down if you think, well, really, is everyone in every society in the world suddenly greedy in a way that... And I look back to, I remember my grandmother used to describe when she was first dating my grandfather, and their idea of a date would be they'd buy one small bar of Kit Kat and share it between the two of them while out walking of an evening. And that would be their entire evening's kind of entertainment and food. But it wasn't that they weren't greedy. It was just that Kit Kats cost disproportionately more. And there were all of these social norms as well around what a portion size was. People in Britain used to have a kind of shared expectation of what food was, and that's gone. So I really think we've got to start looking more at 
I know people hate the idea of nanny state, but that's to assume that it's somehow natural that people should be offered a family-sized bar of chocolate when all they wanted was a newspaper, or that it's natural that there should be 20 kinds of highly sugary breakfast cereals for sale in the children's section of the breakfast cereal aisle, which just didn't used to be there. It's just very, very hard for people to make what are called good food choices in the current environment. And I mean, you touch again on, on most subjects in the book. I mean, do you, do you think it's the government's job to tell us what to eat? Because it, it, it seems to me a lot of the time with, with the labelling, they get it so wrong. I think they get it hugely wrong. And in the book, I wanted to look at what places in the world have got it a bit more right. I don't think it's, I think the problem where that nanny state argument comes in is nobody likes to be told what to put in their mouth. I don't like it myself. And I'm a now, I wasn't in the past. I used to think McDonald's was the most delicious thing in the world. I'm now a relatively healthy eater. You know, I still think chips are incredibly delicious, deep fried food, amazing. Who wouldn't want to eat something crisp and fatty from time to time but on the whole my tastes are fairly healthy but still when I read these government pieces of advice saying why not swap your full fat cheese for a tiny measly slice of low fat cheddar well I think I don't want to that's going to be horrible don't tell me to do that and I think we've got it precisely wrong we've had decades of government telling us what to eat and we ignore it and do the exact opposite. We know that during the decades that the five a day campaign has been in existence, consumption of fruit and veg has gone down. So that approach clearly doesn't work. But what I would like to see government doing is trying to tackle the roots of the problem. And there are lots of positive ways in which this could be done. One of the examples I had in the book was of um, South Korea, which managed to achieve affluence and all of the kind of bonuses of living in modern society without such high levels of heart disease, obesity, junk food consumption. And there are lots of reasons for that. One of which is that fermented cabbage in the form of kimchi is actually a comfort food in South Korea, which takes you quite a long way. But also the government did intervene, but some of the ways it intervened were very positive ones. It wasn't telling people what to eat, but they put on free cookery workshops to make sure that people had the skills and knew how to cook the delicious traditional Korean dishes, many of which are centred on a huge range of vegetables and fermentation. But they're also just things that people want to eat because they're so delicious. They put adverts on TV, which kids would see, urging them to support local farmers and to see the importance of where food actually comes from. I think that's an amazing idea. Imagine if when a child in Britain switched on TV, instead of being bombarded with adverts for tortilla chips and chocolate and ice cream, whatever, they saw stuff about vegetables. I do think that that would make a difference. It's, I mean, it's never one thing at once. But you could also look at governments like Chile, where they've actually got much, much more interventionist on labelling. I mean, they're the other extreme, aren't they? They're, they're pretty hard on, on everything. Explain why they're not using colours. I mean, the, the whole labelling system is fascinating, yeah. actually. The thing with food labelling is most... Nutrition labelling is designed to change the way people eat. But as with government lectures, most of it's totally counterproductive because the people who read those nutrition labels are consumers that are highly educated who are already probably quite conscious of what they're eating. And so it just increases inequality around food because the people who really should be reading the label perhaps don't read the label, don't benefit from it. 
And it's really confusing. I mean, I sometimes look at those tables. You were just saying you think the advice isn't even right. I often feel that. You look and you think they're never somehow able to think about food in a holistic way. They'll take something like cheese or nuts and say it's automatically bad because it's high in fat. And you think, well, come on, it's a bit more complicated than that. There are good fats and bad fats. There are different ways of thinking about food. And the labelling system we have here with that traffic light system is a very blunt instrument. Having said that, what Chile did is they took the blunt instrument and made it even blunter. But the great virtue there is it's incredibly clear. So in place of all of this minute information of X amount of protein and X amount of carbohydrate, they just put these giant black stop signs on any food that was essentially ultra processed, but therefore also high in sugar, high in salt or high in saturated fat. And it's, it's not a perfect system, but from what we can tell, it's starting to change consumer behaviour. And I think that's, at this point, the only way you can really test whether these schemes are good or not. Again, with, with, in that case of Chile, you talk about um, the charming lady you met in Santiago who, who felt that every time she added a bit of Malden uh, sea salt with this, with this stark message on, she felt that, you know, it, it, it was becoming something rather scary. Uh, you know, salt is, is, is an essential flavoring. Obviously, it's, it's essential to life as well. But the whole thing about what you're writing about, the way we eat now, is there, there are no blacks and whites. There are very few right and wrongs. It's all shades of grey, isn't it? And it's so complex, this whole food issue. of you know, I mean, it's, it's got to do with class. It's got to do with history. It's got to do with all manner of things. Governments and, I think, a lot of writers try and simplify it too much. I mean, there, there is no one thing, is there? That's why it's such a difficult thing for governments to legislate, which is part of why I think they have been so reluctant to legislate. Because with smoking, for example, I mean, there, the tobacco lobby did a very successful job of delaying anti-smoking legislation. It took much longer than it probably should have done. But still, that's a very clear cut thing. Do you smoke or do you not smoke? And not smoking is fine. You're not going to die of hunger if you don't smoke. Whereas with food, you can't just tell people don't eat because much of what's for sale is not healthy. The last thing you want to do is trigger eating disorders. And the ultra-processed food industry has been extremely clever at capitalising on this fact and muddying the waters. But as you say, the waters are pretty muddy. It's not as if one fizzy drink here or there is going to make the difference. You know, you people can eat an incredibly healthy diet and then eat a few unhealthy things. And it's no big deal. And therefore, it's much, much harder somehow to decide where to draw the lines. But I think we have, it's pretty clear now, and all of the experts in the world that I spoke to agree, this is now beyond the remit of individuals. There does need to be bigger action. And where is that going to come from, if not from governments? The problem is, it's very hard to motivate governments to do things which they might perceive as being anti-business. I mean, really what we have to do, you know, we want a food industry. (laughs) We desperately want a food industry, but what we want to do is somehow incentivize them to sell us food that will do us good rather than food that's doing us harm. And this is this is very apt at the moment. We're talking about an agricultural bill, which would allow in its present form, although it's in the Lords at the moment, but this is an agricultural bill that would allow food imports to come in to a standard. And we talk about the, the you know, the sort of the famous chlorinated chicken and the hormone injected beef, of which are big threats. But this, if it gets through, and it seems the Conservatives are, are, are sort of absolutely uh, determined to get it through, this would allow food to come into this country um, of a level that wouldn't be allowed by law 
our own farmers to produce. I mean, this this is a government who's supposed to be promoting good eating, but yet this fundamental approach to, to, to food and agriculture, you know, they're just thinking about free trade, they shout, and, you know, and trade deal with America and, and nothing else matters. I mean, do, do you have any faith in government when it comes to uh, looking after the, you know, our farmers, for example, the good farmers, the good farming practice that we can have? I, I don't have a huge amount of faith at the moment, but I do have optimism that something could change. I mean, I think it's terrible that um, they're simply not seeing the value of British farming. Um, and there's so much that happens through farming in this country that we should be really proud of and that we should be nurturing and looking after. And it's such a contradiction, isn't it? Because during lockdown, suddenly we did, at some really visceral level, suddenly see, oh, the people that sell us food and the people that grow that food and the people that raise that food, they're really important. Those people are key workers. So we sort of recognise that. But we didn't then take the next step, which is to say, well, okay, if those people are really important, let's really value them and let's talk to them and let's figure out how we can support them to do even more of what they do. And so we could become, you know, nobody ever thinks Britain could become fully self-sufficient in food. Our climate wouldn't, you know, I'm totally addicted to many um, tropical ingredients ranging from coffee to spices that I wouldn't want to do without. And I'm extremely grateful that people in other countries grow those things. Having said that, voices such as Tim Lang, Professor of Food Policy, will say we could be producing way more of our own food in Britain. We're actually very good at growing. It turns out people like Hodmadods have done this great job of reviving old pulse varieties like legumes, peas, beans that hadn't been grown for generations. They go brilliantly in Britain. And as you say, we've got these higher welfare standards for the production of meat. It's a tragedy really that people in the current government well many people in the current government don't quite seem to be able to join the dots and see how important food is but I think it's that is kind of the end point of decades during which we have somehow just treated food as a commodity like any other commodity and it's absolutely more important isn't it this is the thing that there's so many people who see food as lifestyle something to watch people cooking on telly you know like flower arranging or, or diy but surely and this is what you've said for um for years as many other food writers and you know food is not just this commodity it's not just this entertainment it's health it's wealth it's happiness it is it is the one universal experience we all have the one we all share and possibly it is the most important thing i'm afraid because it, it keeps us alive and what we put into our bodies um as we're finding out affects behavior affects health so i mean on that level do you think that cooking should be taught in schools you know and treated as importantly as english and maths and french and not called home economics which kills it but really to show at the beginning you know how to make fresh food how to cook the basics i do and but i also think that eating should be taught in schools and i'm actually yeah. doing this myself so i now spend only about half of my time doing food writing and the rest of the time it's just a total passion project and it's a bit um self-sabotaging because it takes up so many hours <laughs> it's because i really believe in it i've co-founded a charity called taste ed short for taste education and we go into schools and train up teachers to deliver these lessons which are so yes, I completely agree. Children need to be cook, taught how to cook. They need to be taught how to grow. Um, but a step before cooking is, do you actually know these ingredients? Do you actually know a tomato? Do you know a peach? Do you know a carrot? We've met children where if you say to them, where does a carrot grow? They think carrots grow on trees. And then if you ask, okay, maybe it grows in the ground. 
they a lot of them I mean this was four and five year olds admittedly but still they didn't know that the orange part grew under the ground they sort of I mean I can't even quite picture that in my mind they were imagining that the carrots were balancing on top of foil like sort of ten pins or something so what we're trying to do is to go into classrooms get children to use all five senses and in a really positive way introduce them to these different vegetables and fruits and actually that has given me a load of optimism because what you see is even a child that's never in their lives um, tried a raw carrot before if you present it in a really positive exciting way and instead of saying in a lecturing five-a-day way you should eat this it's healthy it's got a vitamins and vitamin c if you just say well when i cut open this tomato what do you see and they'll say these extraordinary things like the inside of the tomato looks like burning lava or it looks like a brain or one of them said it looks like the letter g and then we all looked and we suddenly saw the letter g and then you say well you don't have to try it but if you would like to do you want to try a bit almost everyone does and then having tried it in that quite positive sort of have a go if you like sort of way they usually like it so my dream and this is a form of education it's in Finland it's just a basic universal entitlement every child has this taste education Finland is so often held up as an example of what to do and you know we're not Finland they've got different politicians they've they're a much smaller country they've got preschool that goes all the way up to the age of six or maybe seven so that's a kind of captive audience it's easier to do it there but I still feel well if Finnish children are seen to deserve this why not ours and it, and it does put the pleasure back into it. I love those descriptions. You, you gave some examples just now that you put on Twitter of the joy. I remember when I was at school and the, the food was disgusting at English boarding school. And perhaps, you know, one of the great problems we have as a country was our institutional food is is, is, is so soulless and, and, and disgusting. But it was the joy of the interaction of food as pleasure. You know, we moving away from that very Victorian thing of, you know, eating to live. It's fun and it's not just, as you say, waggy finger and eat this and do that. But look at the joy of, of eating. And I mean, are you finding that you're getting any help within the system that people will say, oh, we'd love, you know, because at schools obviously love it, but you're doing it off your own bat. I can't see that you're being funded millions of pounds to, you know, create this. <laughs> We're not being funded millions of pounds yet. If anyone is listening and would like to get in touch, we have a website. We've got a tiny bit of funding, enough to have hired a project manager. Schools have been amazingly positive about it. I would love to see it adopted by the Department of Health or and or the Department of Education. We've got these fully formed lesson plans and PowerPoints now, so they're just ready to go. I think it comes back to this bigger problem we were discussing about whether food is seen as important. So traditionally, Ofsted has not really looked at food as something that mattered very much. Thanks to various campaigners, in theory, that's going to change. But I think actually you put your finger on it just now when you said about these Victorian attitudes. I think those almost seep through everything don't you I mean I feel like NHS advice on food still has that Victorian attitude of you ought to eat this rather than why not try and you know what we try and say with the kids for example is some people just do not like soft mushy textures and that's fine so the child who doesn't like a squidgy tomato may also not like a squidgy blueberry but we try and encourage them to say well okay maybe you're a crunchy food person so why not focus on that and find everything crunchy to eat that gives you joy there's absolutely none of that spirit is there in official health leaflets 
I know that is their awfulness in, in in that sort of you know sort of uh, deathless prose as well. That the sort of you know it's it back to the the waggy finger. But when we think about British food and eating, we always say, well, in France and Italy, they understand the value of uh, you know really good chicken or why the tomato tastes good, which is traditionally true. But if you think about Britain, I suppose going way back before rationing, um, I suppose with the Enclosures Act and moving all the way through through rationing through the white heat of technology, we sort of lost our interest in home cooking, didn't we? It became about the process and the exciting and the shiny and, you know, rationing didn't help. And then I suppose, you know, mother's cooks leaving the kitchen and going to work. There's a whole sort of uh, history of of why we're in the state we are in now. But do you think that there is hope for, you know, not just British food, but the the way we eat, uh, the way we live, the way we look at food, like what you're doing? You're optimistic or pessimistic about the future? I'm always optimistic because otherwise, why would you get up in the morning? Like, you may as well be optimistic. We might be wrong, but what does it serve anyone going around the world in a pessimistic state saying no point trying anything really because it will never change? I mean, even if the pessimists turn out to be correct, I would rather spend my life in a state of optimism. But there is huge cause for optimism. That book, the previous book I wrote, this one, First Bite, which was about how eating habits can change, researching that gave me huge cause for optimism because I thought about things like which I'd never known before the fact that what we think of as Japanese food which is such as an, an amazing combination of delicious and mostly healthy only has been in existence really for about 100 years in the 19th century visitors to Japan said it was so sad they seemed to take so little pleasure in their meals so by the same token of course Britain can change and I feel there are these stories that we don't celebrate enough one of the you mentioned women leaving the home and that that was home cooking took a hit which is undoubtedly true but something that seems to have happened much more recently and it seems to be happening all over the world and it's amazing and we should be shouting about it is men cooking you know that's if I think of my father's generation my grandfather's generation it was so unusual for men to cook I can picture people of my grandfather's generation, where the only knife work they would ever do would be slicing a lemon for a gin and tonic. That was it. Whereas now, it's it's absolutely normal for men to be in the kitchen. It's extremely hard to measure statistically, but there was some data from the States suggesting that for men, cooking, home cooking has been a huge growth occupation over the past 20 years. So when we say home cooking is in decline, that's a really gendered statement. And great that men are cooking because men are then, it's not only that it's sparing women the task of cooking, but they're getting all the benefits. And I just think cooking does amazing things for a person's mental health, as well as that. I mean, it's just doing something with your hands, not looking at a screen. It, it is. Did you grow up in a house that took food seriously? I mean, were, were your parents good cooks? Were you encouraged to eat and cook? I did. And I was really lucky in that. So my mum was a good cook. She was a kind of um, Delia Smith sort of cook. There was lots of fish pie. There was stew and dumplings. And actually, sometimes I think about it, I think, why don't I make dumplings enough? Like, that's such a good dish when it's, but it was time. I think she she did lots of really quite time consuming things, lots of suet puddings, lots of quite kind of stodgy, but delicious things, lots of sausages and mash. But I was, I think the thing I feel so lucky about and the reason I eventually became a food writer probably is that we had not a huge number of food books in the house but we had like a little bookshelf with classics on it we had a couple of Elizabeth Davids 
few Jane Grigsons, one of the early Madder Jeffreys, which I think my dad had actually bought and tried to experiment with. We had one book about macrobiotic food, which I don't think anyone in my house ever ate, but I was fascinated by that as a kind of early version of clean eating. And I just used to sit at the kitchen table and read these books obsessively. And actually, the Rue Brothers' first book, we all watched that on TV and just, they're just geniuses, aren't they? And I, my mum let me experiment. So from the age of about 10 onwards, I was doing my own weird experiments in the kitchen. And sometimes I could persuade people in the family to eat what I'd cooked. <laughs> sometimes I couldn't. But she was very generous in just letting me make a mess and buying the ingredients. And it's interesting when you talk about, um, I mean, Jane Grigson and, and Elizabeth Dave, I suppose, are, are very opposite. Jane Grigson sort of gives you a recipe. She's very sensible. And, you know, you really know that these, you know, like a sort of, I suppose, a slightly before Delia, not much. But whereas Elizabeth Dave was much more vague and, 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 and scent driven and, you know, wasn't it? It was just cook this until it's ready and wasn't it wonderful and eat it outside. But going back through that history of, did you get later into sort of Dorothy Hartley and Florence White and all those sort of wonderful writers from... from, now from... Dorothy Hartley's amazing, isn't she? I mean, she just gives you a sense of... When I think now about things like how incredibly good British cheese has become, I mean, that's another source of hope, that British cheese making, which was something that in the days of Derek Cooper being on the food programme, he was terribly worried that it was on the way out. And then suddenly, against all the odds, partly thanks to Neil's Yard, this new generation of cheesemakers come along and start making things as delicious and wonderful as at any point in the past. But reading Dorothy Hartley, the things that really make my mouth water, there are these descriptions of how butter used to be and how butter wasn't just one thing, but you'd go to these country fairs and there'd be 10 different kinds of butter. And just the thought of that and the beautiful butter pats that people had and the idea that butter could be something. I mean, I'm still pretty happy with the commodified butter that we have in the shops. I just think it's, it's delicious in any form. But she really gives you a sense that British food was something a lot more artisanal, and I also, I love that section in Food in England um, where she shows you, I'm not a brilliant pastry maker. My daughter's actually much better than me. But the pies, do you remember that bit where you, you have different, like a treacle tart would have different lattice work on the top compared to an apple pie. And I love that, the sort of signs and symbolism of food, the idea that there were these rituals that people just knew it's gooseberry season and you're going to make a gooseberry pie and the pastry on top is going to look a certain way. And we've lost that. But whatever comes next could be something even more wonderful, don't you think? Oh, definitely. I mean, and you, you talk about your children. I mean, they are obviously, you know, to state the obvious, they are the future. They've grown up, obviously, in, in, in a household obsessed with good food. But what are their views on food? Do they, are they sort of evangelical or are they, you know, totally obsessed with seasonal? How has your passion sort of passed on to them? I think it's very, I mean, talking to other friends that are food writers, they will say, I think there's a point where children really react against it. Other friends, actually Diana Henry said this to me, that I once went to her house and I don't know if you've ever been to Diana Henry's house, but her jam larder is the most extraordinary. It's like utopia, Diana Henry's jam larder. It's, you know, she's got rose petal jam, she's got fig jam, she's got all of these beautiful, extraordinary combinations. And and I said, oh, your children must love this. And she said, no, they just want Bon Maman strawberry. Because there's a point, so with my oldest one, who's actually now 21, but there was a point where he would just react against it and he'd be in Subway with his friends every day. And I'd be like, Tom, but it's just, he's another Tom. He, I would just, 
how can you eat that? It just smells bad when you walk past. But then I realised that is the thrill of it, isn't it? You've got to be able to react against. But I do think it's it's gone in for all of them. My daughter, as I say, has become a real baker because I think she's spotted. I do make puddings and I do make cakes and biscuits, but not as much as I make main courses. So she cooks endlessly from Richard Bertinet, Ottolenghi's sweet book. She makes the most delicious things. And then the youngest one, which I described a bit in First Bite, was my picky one. But I now think, I'm now wondering if lots of chefs were originally picky eaters, because we now think he might be a super taster. So he's the one where if you serve him something and it's got a tiny, tiny speck of something he doesn't like, for example, coconut, he'd be like, why did you think you could slip a spoonful of coconut milk into this soup and I wouldn't notice? And I'm like, okay, you got me there. But actually, I think that that's, quite a useful skill just to be attuned you know it's funny with children you know my, my children are the same as one will eat oysters and my son will eat oysters and everything you know whereas my daughter her idea of heaven is a hurt of frankfurter and it's try to be careful try to be careful to say you know not to demonize too many foods because the more we say oh isn't mcdonald's or burger king or subway awful although i quite like mcdonald's uh the more it'll be like oh we get a reaction out of this one i do think carrot is always better than stick when it comes to food and just kind of leading somebody there through the joy, the joy of the good stuff and through their own senses. Like a frankfurter isn't the worst thing in the world. If that were the only thing she were eating, it wouldn't be great. But I'm sure she's eating lots of other delicious things as well. I mean, you never know. It's it's so difficult parenthood, isn't it? Because when you're right in the middle of it, you think it is sort of crushing those times in the past where I've cooked something amazing and then they reject it. So hard not to take it personally and to try and argue them out of it. One of the biggest things I've learned doing taste of is you can never argue somebody out of their own tastes, but you can subtly, slowly kind of brainwash them into new tastes. And I took a lot of hope from this study that came out of Mexico that I think I wrote about in First Bite about chilies and how they studied this one Mexican village. And at the age of one, nobody liked chilies. At the age of four, the children still didn't like chilies. But by the age of, I think it was eight, every single person in that village loved chilies because they saw their brothers eating it. They saw their fathers eating it. It was on the table. It was associated with other good things. So I think that kind of pairing something that you're not sure about with something that you absolutely love is quite a good way. But as you say, it is really strange. I mean, human beings are such strange animals when it comes to food because in evolutionary terms, we shouldn't in some way be eating chilli because the whole point of a chilli's heat is it was a kind of defence mechanism so that the seed could prevent itself from being eaten. But then it didn't work because we turned out to be very strange and just like we like going on roller coasters for the thrill of nearly dying. We like that. And it is kind of addictive, isn't it? That burning sensation. I never used to like it at all. And I'm now, you want more and more, don't you? Once you want it. Oh, very addictive. Can't live without. But you offer some towards the end pragmatic advice, perhaps about you know how slowly, gently we can you know change the way we eat. I mean, one of them, which is very apt to Fortnum, as you're talking about, you describe tea as the perfect solution to the question of how to enjoy the very drinks of modern life without consuming excess qualities of quantities of sugar and sweeteners, um, which of course makes us and Fortnum's very happy with all the tea. But are there, in terms of a few, you know, the, the things you end with um, in the book, what, what, what sort of small nudges and uh, little bits of, you know, advice, perhaps, would, would you say to people trying to eat more healthily? 
I think one of the big ones, um, well, it's, it's a big one and a small one, is knowing that you can change your own tastes. So the problem with going on a diet is people are constantly forcing themselves to eat something they dislike. And then eventually, at the end of a few days, usually, they go back to eating the foods they did like, which makes perfect sense. It's a completely unnatural, robotic way to attempt to live, to force yourself to eat something you don't like. But what if your taste could change so that you reach the point where you had a big enough repertoire of vaguely healthy things to eat? Then it's win-win. So that's one thing, which is all of these things are easier said than done. Another one would be to use your senses more. So I say, I mean, this is, it sounds like a really silly, tiny example, but I know it kind of works for me that have some pots of herbs around the kitchen. And when you're feeling low and thinking, oh, I desperately need a sugar hit, well, just try, I mean, it it sounds ludicrous, but it honestly works for me. Take a mint leaf and just tear it and smell it and see how you feel. And I almost guarantee you're going to feel better. You might still want the chocolate, that's fine. But just to be eating in a slightly more conscious way and to allow all of your senses to feel fed by the process. And I think one of the other things I say is just know what you're eating. So much of the time these days, particularly if you're eating packaged foods, you don't actually have a clue what it is you're eating. Is it made out of wheat? Is it made out of corn? Is it made out of sugar or possibly all three? And I'm not saying take anything off limits but just before you consume something maybe actually see if you can identify what's in it because if you can't identify what's in it isn't that slightly strange I mean Michael has this line don't eat anything that your great-grandmother wouldn't recognize as food and I think that's I love Michael Pollan but I think that's a slightly problematic line but if you don't know what you're eating there really is something wrong and usually if you're cooking the food yourself You always know what you're eating. You know every single ingredient that went into it. And we can't say that home cooking is the obvious easy solution because then so many people say, well, that's a very privileged position and not everyone has time. But if you never make time for home cooking in your week, in a way you're saying that food doesn't matter and in a way you're saying that your own survival doesn't matter. So I do think the more you can find pockets of time to devote to food, the happier you might be but I mean I don't I never would want to dictate how someone could live because I know if my sister was listening to this she'd just go no that's just you I hate cooking (laughs) but yeah it is my thing but I still think for most people there is some kind of cooking that you could do in a week that would help you to eat better and probably make you feel better too and you say in the epilogue, eat new food on old plates, but you say nothing as personal as a question of what we put in our mouths. So feel free to ignore anything that doesn't apply to you. I think that, you know, sort of pragmatic idea is, is so important when it comes to talking about food. It's it's the lack of the lecturing and the, you know, it's, it is, it's as you said throughout the whole book, it's everything. It's so intensely personal taste in food and, and the other books you've written. It does help that you know you feel that you're just offering information advice and and your view and and interpretation of that advice but it it is a very very personal thing eating isn't it yeah and we're so varied I mean I think part of the story that will probably only fully emerge maybe over the next five to ten years is the question of personalized nutrition I mean already the work of Tim Spector is showing that the same person might metabolize rice very well and bread not very well and yet in terms of our current nutrition those things are both just carbs and also nutrition advice is kind of doled out 
And we have no idea whether the person we're doling this advice to is actually doing three hours of exercise a day. My youngest son plays huge amounts of sport and I'm really aware I have to feed him in a completely different way from how I feed the other two. And if I ate what he ate, I would um, gain a lot of weight, but if <laughs> he needs it. I do feel it's, it's hugely personal and we should take account and celebrate the sheer variety of human tastes human metabolisms that there are in the world. Definitely. Well, we could go on for hours and hours and hours because we barely scratched the surface. But before uh, you go, I'd love to run through a series of quick questions that we, we ask each of our podcast guests. Here we go. Describe your perfect cup of tea. Oh, my goodness me. That's so difficult. And I, I really am a fan of um, Fortnum's tea. I've just finished the small canister of jade green tea. Okay, I'm going to describe my platonic tea, but it's partly with food and drink, my perfect thing. It always has to have an association with a person. And there was a lovely man I met in Mumbai called Vikram Doctor, who's a brilliant food writer. And he gave me a bag of Darjeeling, which was just the best Darjeeling I ever tasted. And it's now, I'm still husbanding the last bits, even though it's gone a bit stale. And it's in a little canister in my kitchen labelled Vikram's Darjeeling. That's my perfect tea. But actually, realistically, the tea I drink every morning without which I can't wake up would just be English breakfast and a slash of milk. What, and this is another big question, what's your most joyous memory when it comes to a meal? The one I always think of from when I was a child was the first time I was taken to France as a child and these boiled potatoes arrived at the table. And I don't know about you, but the boiled potatoes I had eaten in Britain as a child were kind of soggy, Sometimes they tasted a bit of um, kind of overcooked mint leaves, but they weren't that exciting. And these boiled potatoes, there was there was kind of knife work behind them. Somebody had turned them in some beautiful way with a knife and they were buttery and they were waxy. And I just remember putting them in my mouth. And my whole family used to refer to what I had as this boiled potato smile. <laughs> I just had such a big smile on my face from those potatoes. So that's very hard to top. And I've never quite recreated that potato experience since. What food or drink do you wish you'd invented? I'm going to come up with another Indian one, but actually, well, no, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm a pancake obsessive. I make pancakes several times a week. And although I haven't invented it, I've made them so many times, I almost feel I have. I think just the classic French crepe is just so perfect. The idea that you could just take eggs and milk and flour and butter and turn that into essentially a kind of beautiful brown lace that then has the perfect texture that's somewhat soft and somewhat crispy. I kind of, I feel like I have invented that because I've cooked it so much. (laughs) Um, What is the best way to eat bread? Hmm. It's almost like what is the best bread, isn't it? I really, really love um the Zuni Cafe cookbook which was the only cookbook written by the late Judy Rogers who was a brilliant Californian chef and she has a recipe for roast chicken salad with bread where the bread is kind of torn into these garlicky croutons and the salad's got lots of delicious greens in it and it's got currants and it's got pine nuts and it's got this roast chicken there's something about that crispy croutony bread with a undertone of garlic that just ties the whole thing together wow that's such a good cook with that as well what music or do you listen to music when you cook and what what music do you listen to 
I do. I think my perfect music to cook to, when I listen to kind of old jazz, like Billie Holiday, Lester Young, Django Reinhardt, I find that very mellow. But my kids and I share my Spotify and I get fixated on certain songs and I have to listen to them over and over again. So I'm just listening to My Sweet Lord by George Harrison over and over again at the moment. And I don't know why. <laughs> and then, then I will move on to a certain Bruce Springsteen song and have to listen to that over and over again. Yeah, I go on these strange loops. But there is something about songs and cooking and more particularly maybe for washing up, which I find quite boring. But if you just think, okay, I'm just going to wash up for the amount of time it takes me to listen to My Sweet Lord. Time just goes. And finally, the question is, what's your guilty food pleasure? But I don't feel that food should have guilt attached to it. But you sort of know where we're coming from. Yeah, I do know where you're coming. I mean, yeah, I don't think food should. I think if it's if it's a pleasure, you shouldn't feel guilty. And I don't think guilt is a helpful emotion to bring. I mean, there are there are certain things like I used to, which I wrote about in the first part. I used to be a compulsive eater. I haven't been a compulsive eater for years. And then there are certain foods where you just think, oh, okay, if I had this in my life all the time, it would be a whole. Other. And I think I don't know cheese straws. That's not really they've got to be good cheese straws, you know, like really amazing cheese straws. I think I could eat a whole batch of that. But also, if if you want really guilty pleasure, actually equally addictive. I never, ever, ever buy them, partly because if I did, they would just be gone. But something like a packet of Watsits, you know, those kind of cheesy, salty, orange powdery snacks, probably be nowhere near a piece of cheese, has it? No, God, no. That's a joy of them. But you eat one and the powder kind of melts on your tongue and then you think this isn't that good and then before you know it the whole packet's gone (laughs) the the joy of british chris that's a whole different subject but b thank you so much it really has been fascinating and a joy thank you to everyone who's tuned in today be sure to subscribe to our podcast series fortnum's hungry minds to hear conversations and lively debate around new ideas knowledge and the joy of real food